You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Jen Wilkin and JT English for the first episode of Season 9. How's it going, (laughs) y'all? I'm doing great, but I feel like we just got done with our last season. It's like I saw you guys a week ago. I wanted summer I to be longer. I do. At this <laughs> point, I do feel. not want summer to be longer. We are absolutely mm. baking in our skins here in Texas. And JT, if you ask me to move to Colorado one more time, I'm going to throw something at you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not asking you to move. It's really hot here today, too. It's like 88 <laughs> with a light, light, cool breeze coming off the mountains. It's brutal. Well, JT started <laughs> off his like, uh, hey, guys, good morning with a, I just got back from vacation and how beautiful it was and then he went immediately transitioned into how great the weather was in Colorado so it was a double whammy right out of the gate from JT it's tough to come I mean when you come back from vacation to vacation it's just a tough life you know no (laughs) No, but you know as Jeff Wilkin likes to remind me when you live in Texas everywhere you go on vacation is just the best you're like thrilled to be there so that's true which is I love Texas guys don't get me wrong Texas oh, forever. Yeah. And oh, I'm going to be clear. I we miss, we miss parts of Texas. We we loved it there. It's great. Yeah. What, do you miss the freedom most? <laughs> 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 Just freedom. Um, I was uh, watching uh, the other Aaron Sorkin show, Newsroom. Yeah. I'm watching it with Lauren for the first time. And on that panel, when one of the guys gets asked what makes America the greatest country of the world, he goes, freedom and freedom. <laughs> And then he, it just he gets taken a task eventually, but it did make me laugh. I was like, "Yeah, and Texas gets to add a third freedom into that. We are, we, you know, we're freedom, freedom, and freedom here in Texas, for better or worse." I really miss great hamburgers in Texas, specifically. Oh, okay, wait, so, what? It's a joke. Oh, yeah. It's a so, joke. Like, one of the things I've been laughing about is I've been thinking about all these Californians who are like, "Let's move to Texas. It's going to be just like here." And now it's like right. Satan and all of his minions are lighting bonfires all over the state. I mean, it is so. Hot. It is it is incredible to see California celebrities post these crazy social media posts about just normal Texas reality. Oh, like fire ants. Like Did you see at, the fire ant one? Yes, I saw that fire <laughs> ant video and I was like, I've never once in my life thought about I just fire ants were something you just yeah. were like, yeah, fire ants are are everywhere. They are going to bite you. Look where you sit. I've never that was it. That's that's how you know it's spring when your whole leg gets Exactly. Up. And then to yeah. see actors be like, oh my gosh, these fire ants. I'm like, fire. Fire ants, that's what got you. I just thought, I, th- I thought fire ants were everywhere. It turns out, no, it's a Texas yeah. tribulation. No, they, actually, this is something I've learned. They are not west of the Rockies. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. I wonder why that is. Uh, I guess they're not great mountain climbers, Kyle. <laughs> oh, well, then, then I have something in common with them. I've, I, I, I climbed one mountain and I just about thought to myself, I got down at the bottom of it. It was with the group that has done these backpacking adventures. I actually think they've, advertised on knowing faith before wonderful people wonderful group i got down at the bottom after the hike we get all the way back and the guy who is a friend i love what they're up to he goes what did you think of the trip man and i said i understand why people do it i see its value and i'm never going to do it again (laughs) 
I believe in what you're doing. I think it's immensely valuable. I'm never doing it again. Um, so yeah, yeah me I, and I fire ants. That. Well, mm-hmm. we are talking about the doctrine of God this season. As we told you in the teaser that came out last week, we are covering the doctrine of God, which is, this is a little bit of a break from what we've been up to. We, we've been spending focus time in books of the Bible. You think of the last two seasons where we were diving in deep into Romans. And every book of the Bible that we've studied, we've explored the doctrine of God because the Bible is primarily a story about God. And so there will be times in this season where you go, well, I think they've talked about this before. And certainly we have, whether we were in a historical book or we were in Genesis or we were in Romans or one of the other books we've covered. I've lost track at this point. We have come across key aspects of the discussion around the doctrine of God because the Bible's a book about God. We shouldn't be surprised by that, right? Yeah, and this is one of the most basic uh, Bible literacy tools to start with when you decide that Mm -hmm. you want to get better at reading the Scripture the way it is meant to be read, uh, and that is to start asking when you're reading, what am I seeing that's true about God here? But, you know, As we've said many times, to ask that question does not mean that you necessarily have the lenses to answer it well. And so what we're hoping to do during this um, season, I almost said semester, is to help you sort of develop a vocabulary around the things that are true about God so that you Mm -hmm. can begin to notice them when you're reading with more top-of-mind awareness than you might have had before we went through them this season. So it's important because it helps us to read the Bible better, but it's also important because it is the reference point that we need for self-knowledge, which is what everybody wants. We want to know who we are, and it's the starting point for that. Yeah, and you know that's exactly what I was thinking about this morning as I was coming in, I've, I pulled down my one of my copies of the Institutes. This is not the copy I endorse, but it's the one I had at my office, the other one's at home. Just want to be clear, there are better and worse copies. This is not as good a copy. But in the very beginning of chapter one of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and you both are very familiar with this, we've said it on the podcast many times, this is John Calvin on the knowledge of God. This is like line one of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Again, one of the most famous theological works, one of the most influential theological works in history. I'm sure JT's turning around to get his copy right now. Just going to make sure you quote it right. Oh, my god. Perfect. Gosh. Well, this is this is one of the earlier translations. So this one is going to probably be different from the McNeil that you have. It says this, nearly the whole of sacred doctrine consists in these two parts, knowledge of God and of ourselves. So Calvin he begins what is one of arguably one of the most influential theological works of all time saying nearly the whole of sacred doctrine consists in these two parts knowledge of god and of ourselves and like jen just said we often want to get to the knowledge of self part that's we want to rush to what does it mean for me what does this say about me who who am i in light of x or y or z yeah. but there is a proper flow in scripture knowledge of god knowledge of self and they're intimately related, but one does come before the other, and it is knowledge of God. And if we're using Calvin as a reference point, and I've heard I've heard this line used, I think improperly uh, over the last several years by prominent and influential evangelicals and theologians. It's not just that he says there are these these two kinds of knowledge that are the same or equal, and it's not just that he says there's flow. There mm-hmm. is flow to this. It is knowledge of God leads to knowledge of self. But I think it's important for us to continue just. And I know you know this, Kyle, and you know this, Jen, but just to give our give our listeners a sense for like, why does he say that? Why does the knowledge 
knowledge of God and knowledge of self interrelate. I'm just going to read two sentences that that are not back to back, but in this next paragraph, he says, indeed, our very poverty better discloses the infinitude of benefits Mm -hmm. that are possessed by God. The miserable ruin into which the rebellion of the first man cast us especially compels us to look upward. So it's not like we're looking at God and looking at self. We're like, we're both pretty awesome. Yeah. Like we both kind of have like these, this, he's awesome and I'm awesome. He's saying, as we look at ourselves in the mirror, we see the, the poverty that sin has cast us into and that compels us to look upward to see the infinite perfections that are beheld in God and God alone. And then he ends this, that first paragraph with this. He says, accordingly, the knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to seek God, but also as it were, it leads us by the very hand to find him. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, it's our I think poverty the reason this is always top of mind for me is because that is we found only in God. In a time, which That's is good. I would imagine not different from any other time, in which we do not view ourselves according to the true poverty of spirit that we have apart from God. In fact, there are all kinds of voices that want to tell you that you have what it takes inside mm-hmm. of you and that you can do it and you are amazing. And those are not untruths um, when we when we put them in the right perspective, but the right perspective is granted by the knowledge of God, which orients us properly. And like you think about the Beatitudes when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. There's that relationship there. You know, when we see God, our poverty of spirit falls into the right category for us. Mm-hmm. It becomes a place to start instead of a place to end. And um, and when we behold him, we understand ourselves in light of his perfections in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. And too often our reference point is another person. Um, if I want to decide whether I am just or righteous, I simply look to someone who is less just yeah. or righteous than me, and I might tell myself that I'm doing just fine. Or I might look to someone who's more just or righteous than I am, and I might tell myself if I just work harder, I can get there. And uh, and there is hard work involved in in being conformed to the image of Christ, but it's it's grace driven effort. And this is what understanding the doctrine of God can help us to see, that there is uh, an infinite distance between us and God, but we can move toward Him and bear His image as we were created to, only by first mm-hmm. beholding who He is and, and understanding His perfections in a way that we hadn't hadn't taken the time to think about before. Yes. And in a, uh, I think one of the most helpful benefits of a deep meditation on the doctrine of God specifically is yes, it illuminates uh, a proper understanding of self, but principally, its principal benefit is not that it helps us see ourselves more clearly or the world more clearly. It helps us to know, believe, and worship God with greater clarity, and hopefully, in light of greater clarity, greater depth and greater fervor, that that there will be a proper passion that accompanies that kind of meditation and reflection, um, uh, that kind of that as we as we dig deep into uh, a doctrine like the doctrine of God, that it overflows into worship. Even going back to Romans in last season, Paul at the end of that stretch of Romans nine, ten, and eleven, which are some pretty dense reflection. <clears throat> on uh, the the will of God specifically. Uh, but at the end of that in Romans 11, right, you know, before he turns the, the, the direction and the angle towards kind of that ethical exhortation in Romans 12 through 16, he ends in Romans 11, for oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, 
mm-hmm. right? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. So this, you know, as it's been said before, kind of this appropriate and proper and sound theology should lead to vibrant doxology or worship uh, and obedience rendered unto this God that we have come to know. If we're going to, if somebody's clicking on an episode that says the doctrine of God, it they're either wondering what is a doctrine or they maybe already have a working definition in their head of what a doctrine is. So before we move forward in exploring the doctrine of God, and really in this episode, we're just going to be skimming the surface to kind of get you your appetite whetted, so to speak, for diving in deep in the remaining episodes. We should begin by talking through the question, what is a doctrine? When we say the doctrine of blank, what are we saying, JT, when we say the doctrine of blank? What does it mean to say the word doctrine? Yeah, doctrine is a really simple word, and we also need to be clear. It's, it should be and is rightly used outside of Christianity. Christianity does not have a monopoly on what a doctrine is. Doctrine could be political. It could be ideological. It could be religious and spiritual. Doctrine in its most basic, basic sense just means a belief or a creed or a commonly held truth by a group of people based on whatever reason it might be. So you might have a, a, a doctrine of war. You might have a doctrine of politics. You might have a doctrine of some kind of ideology. But in Christianity, the goal of doctrine is to help us rightly kind of uh, – assemble, put together, synthesize truths that we found that we find in God's word. So for example, the doctrine of God would be what do these 66 books disclose to us, reveal about who God is and what God is doing in the world. And so I was even thinking as you guys were talking a second ago, when we think about who God is and, and, and kind of rightly appropriating knowledge of God and knowledge of self, we have to rightly understand what the Bible is, and it is a rev- – we call it revelation, or the Greek word that we would use is like it's an apocalypse, which means like a disclosing or a, a veil being opened. And that's what the Bible is doing is it's ultimately pulling this veil back of who God is and what he's done in the world. And the doctrine of God appropriately comes first because who God is, if we I, – I think we've used this analogy before. It's almost like a Jenga – I think of like a Jenga like tower. If you get this doctrine wrong, like it's the foundation on the base, the whole rest of the puzzle, whether you're talking about humanity, sin, salvation, the church, what God is doing in the end times, all of it becomes distorted if we don't get this doctrine of God right. So this basic, when we say doctrine of God, we're saying what is the basic belief about who God is, what he is like, and what he is doing and acting in the world so that we can appropriately know him. Yes. That's exactly right. I think of 1 Timothy 1, 13, um, that says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted mm-hmm. to you. Uh, you think about Jude, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. When we think about the pattern of sound words, we are thinking about doctrine. We're thinking, what has God's word revealed to be true about who God is, what he has done, who we are, what the world is, and all nature of belief and practice for the Christian. And so, yes, doctrine is a pattern of sound words uh, that corresponds or accords with what the Bible says and what the history of the church has kind of codified in its rule of faith as what is true about who God is, concerning who God is and what he's done. So maybe one way to even think about this real practically is it's impossible to not have doctrine. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you, sometimes doctrine can be used as this term that's thrown around. It's like, well, that's so, 
you know, doctrinal or, or whatever. Like it can it can feel like you're a fundamentalist if you have doctrine, or you're you're somebody who like is rigid if you believe in doctrine. That itself is a doctrine, and so we need to make sure that if you're listening to this, and that word doctrine is a little kind of maybe makes you step back a little bit and like, I don't want to have doctrine about God. I want to have a relationship with God. Well, that's a doctrine too. And so if, if this word makes you nervous, just know that we're using this term very broadly because everybody has a doctrine. The question isn't, do you have doctrine? The question is, is does your doctrine align with what God has said? Right. Mm-hmm. So right. it's there are multiple doctrines of God. We are going to present mm-hmm. you with a doctrine of God that is a consistent reading of the Bible. At least we hope we are going to. And if we don't, then we will hope quit so. our jobs. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think probably, and people are probably familiar with this quote, but it goes to the heart of the question of like, why do you need the doctrine of God? And this is A.W. Tozer, who's the OG on this subject. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself, and the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. Mm. Let's just read his book this whole uh, this whole term. Let's not let's just <laughs> this whole season could just be us doing readings from Tozier. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your copy today. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your your copy today. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold.
Well, there's no doubt that the writing on the doctrine of God is some of the richest in the Christian tradition because the subject matter is yeah. God. And that's why I do find that uh, – and I don't know who said this. I think it was Lewis actually in his preface to On the Incarnation. If you remember, uh, JT, he talks about how he's found more benefit in the reading of books of deep doctrine than he has in the devotional readings that are uh, always kind of uh, so oh, yeah. prevalent and, and present. He's talking on the reading of old books in mm-hmm. his foreword to mm-hmm. uh, Athanasius is on the incarnation. And that I, I, I too find myself, whether it's with a Tozer or it's Packer or it's Calvin or Augustine or any of the kind of great commentators and teachers and writers on the topic of the doctrine of God, I find myself stirred up to worship through the dwelling on this deep doctrine for the same reason that Paul does in Romans 11 or in any of the doxologies we find is because when your subject matter is God himself, there is not a richer subject matter, right? So it's not like there's anything out there that's going to be more substantive, more uh, rewarding, more gratifying. And yet, as Augustine says, uh, nowhere are the mistakes more dangerous uh, and the temptations more readily available. And I think that you'll find that um, we've often used the analogy of the kind of guardrails on the road of doing theology on this podcast, that a lot of times we're trying to live between these guardrails. Doctrine of God is one of those doctrines, like JT said, it's uh, crucial in the Jenga tower, so to speak, of Christian belief. And there are temptations everywhere (laughs) in the doctrine of God. I'm here to be your guardrails, Kyle. There are landmines (laughs) everywhere. You can just stumble totally with good intentions. I mean, oftentimes it is with good intentions into something that presents a uh, a crack uh, in, in a part of the foundation where you absolutely do not want to crack at. Uh, and so maybe let's just pause here for a second because we're talking a little bit about it, but I want to get clear about it. How do we come to doctrine? Okay, so if there could be multiple competing doctrines of God, right? So if we're all carrying doctrine around with us, beliefs about who God is and what he has done, if we're all theologians, and the only question is what are our key theological beliefs, how do we, and I'm, I'm not saying that we're answering for everybody. I'm saying how, how do we, the three of us, uh, how do we come to doctrine? How do you arrive at doctrine? Because it's, there is a process element. You were born with bad doctrine about God. I mean, that is a the- that's actually good doctrine about human sin, that you're born with bad doctrine about God. Uh, so, but how do we come to good or accurate or sound words about God and what he has done? How do we arrive there? What I'm about to say might sound a little controversial, especially if I were teaching this in a first-year seminary course. This tends to get some of the, like, the biggest questions are like, wait, what? So uh, I want to be real clear about what I mean by this. The first way we come to doctrine is clear, and Paul Paul makes this clear, I think, in Romans chapter 1. We can come to doctrine through just common natural revelation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Romans chapter 1 does not say that God has hidden himself in creation. It says that he has revealed himself clearly in mm-hmm. creation. And so when I look out outside where I get to pastor here in Colorado, I get to look 
look up at the mountains and say, how majestic are your ways, O Lord? Well, at least that's what my instinct should be. Uh, our, our sinful uh, pattern is to suppress mm-hmm. that knowledge, Paul tells us. And so what we need is a special revealed knowledge. So common or natural revelation allows us to see who God is, but we can see it clearly only once we've had special revelation given to us in Christ and in Scripture. So Hebrews tells us that God spoke through the prophets in these days of old, but now he's spoken clearly to us in his Son, and that he is the exact imprint of his nature. So when we look at the Son, when we look at Jesus, we can say that's what God is like. If we have a doctrine of God that is inconsistent with the person and work of Jesus, we don't have a God to be worshipped or prayed to. We have a false idol that should be killed and, 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 and laid away. We can also see God clearly in Scripture. The Bible tells us that this is God's authoritative, inspired, and inerrant word, and that every single word of it allows us to more clearly see who God is. So the first way we come to know God is through revelation. But there's two other ways that I want to highlight for us quickly that would be a little less common for us to think about in coming to know God. One of those is church history. Uh, we, in a modern moment, really believe that like the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, departed for 2,022 years, or I guess 2,000, like 1,900 years, and like all of a sudden the Holy Spirit descended on my church. And our church now has clearer revelation than the rest of church history does. And Calvin, Edwards, Bavinck, Augustine, Athanasius, those guys might have been smart and wise, but really God had hidden himself until he got to us. And I think that is outright garbage. The Holy Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit is going to come to be the spirit of truth and to lead us into truth. Does that mean the church has been true and right about everything? Absolutely not. We need to read church history with discernment, but we also read it with them as uh, alongside them as brothers and sisters who were doing theology the same way that we were, in the power of the Holy Spirit, sometimes getting things wrong, sometimes getting things right. And so we want to look at the uniform, universal witness of the church about who God is, which is why we want to highlight people like Calvin or Edwards or Bavink or Augustine or even C.S. Lewis, like you just highlighted, Kyle, because the brothers and sisters who've gone before us help us. They give us lenses. They've made the mistakes. They've seen those doctrinal guardrails mm-hmm. kind of be blown through and, and really needed to have to have course correction. And so when we read doctrine in the Bible alongside our brothers and sisters from the past, we read the Bible with more wisdom. I'm going to say one more thing that I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on. Uh, this this and this is the one that when I teach Systematic Theology 1, it, it, students have the most questions on. I believe we can come to doctrinal positions from lived experience. Uh and, and that could be something that people are like, that sounds so liberal, or that sounds so modern. But like, I, I, remember, I've already said, you know, natural revelation, special revelation, Christ, the Bible, church history. But I tell you, and we've talked about this in the podcast a lot, I learned so much about who God was and how he responds to his people when Macy got sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Macy got sick, and, 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 and I just, I needed the Lord, and he really met me in the midst of a valley, and that taught me about who mm-hmm. he was. I got to learn about who he was and experience who he was. Now, the challenge can be is not all experience is divinely inspired. Right. Not all experience is trustworthy in the same way. Not all of our feelings can be... Not our feelings don't share with the same authority or inerrancy as God's word does. So we want to make sure we we have our lived experience lived through the lens of Scripture and lived through the lens of doctrine, lived through the lens of of what we're of of what we might experience. But experience, God is alive and God is active and God is still working in the world today, and we can learn about who He is insofar as it's consistent with what He's already done. Which is why I find Jaroslav Pelikan. He's a church historian. He he says this about doctrine. He says uh, Christian doctrine is what the church believes, teaches 
teaches, confesses, prays, and suffers as it serves and obeys and celebrates and awaits the coming kingdom of God. So doctrine isn't this academic discipline of like just writing. It's living. Mm -hmm. It's praying. It's suffering. It's confessing. Like maybe just to, to put this, to put flesh on this a little bit for our listeners is like, what makes you cry? That's informed by doctrine. What makes you smile? That's informed by doctrine. What makes that like guttural instinct of belly laughter? Like that's informed by doctrine. We 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 never have an, a non-doctrinal moment in our lives. And so if we're just saying, how do we come to doctrine? I'm going to simplify again. Bible, uh, natural revelation, church history, and lived experience in that order. Yeah, I would even say that like the reason that we need one another as the church is because we each have yes. an individual lived experience, which means some yeah. of us will perceive one thing that others of us might not have based on the experiences right. or trials or temptations that have come our way. And that's why we need one another, because in one lifetime, I will not live every aspect of life that might teach me what some of my brothers and sisters are learning. And so just as JT said, like your your lived experience can actually misshape your doctrine of God. Um, we'll talk about that, I'm sure, as we go through this whole um, season together. In the same way that poor Bible reading yes. can misshape your doctrine of God. It's not just like, well, I read the Bible, therefore I came to the right conclusion. That's right. We, th- these are these guardrails that we use for church history, community, uh, the Holy Spirit inspire, illuminating us as we read his inspired mm-hmm, word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And doing this, doing this together, like I promise you, and again, this isn't just for our listeners, it's for the three of us. We're still learning the doctrine mm-hmm. of God, just the three of us mm-hmm. together. We will get to oh, learn sure. together about lived experience, about how we read the Bible. Kyle just reminded me today about, uh, or all of us today, especially in Romans chapter 11, this doxology is a reflection about who God is, which then leads us into ethics. Like, that is a good reminder for us. So we, we never really stop doing the doctrine of God. Right. And I think some of the benefit of listening to those old voices is they've been around a long enough time now that you have a shared testimony to the validity of what they've said that has built over, in some cases, you know, two millennia or about that. Um, Some of them more recent, you know, some of the writing that the Puritans did on the doctrine of God. But again, I'm so fascinated to listen to those who wrote in an age where they didn't have the same, every age has distractions, but they didn't have some of the information-based distractions that are pulling us in so many directions now. I want to know what people thought when they had more thought space. Mm -hmm. So um, you want conversation partners who, who stretch all the way back. Yes, you do. And when we're thinking through those conversation partners, and there's actually right now, uh, for the listener, you may or may not be aware of this, but there's kind of a, um, oh, they they call these moments retrieval moments sometimes, where they'll talk about how there is a, there's kind of a, an awareness that begins to develop in a theological community or a philosophic community for that matter, where they'll go, hey, we actually are maybe a little bit malnourished here. We need to go back and pull some of these insights into our contemporary conversations. And right now there's, there is a retrieval happening uh, on the doctrine specifically of the doctrine of God. Uh, there are, there have been a, there has been a boon, uh, an abundance of publishing in the last three, four years on this topic, even as I was prepping for this season, I was just uh, startled at the quality of books and writings that are coming out on this topic, the conferences that have been coming out on this topic. And so uh, we, we didn't plan this season for that reason. We don't look at the publishing schedules, major <laughs> publishers, and try to 
get in sync. Um, although I'm sure they would love that. Um, but what we, uh, but I was very surprised. There's just been a number of really good books, uh, that have come out recently on this topic. And so I do think that those who pay attention to these things professionally are looking at this season of life of the church and some of the contemporary theological conversations that are happening and going, Ooh, we, we need to kind of retrieve some things that were really just a part of the solid base of theological conversation 100, 500, 600, 1,000 years ago because maybe we have uh, presumed that they were still in circulation, but maybe they're not as commonly known. So things like simplicity, the mm-hmm. simplicity of God, that is a really important part of the conversation when we're talking about the doctrine of God. Yep. And uh, so we're going to talk about the simplicity of God. What are some other crucial issues we'll be discussing when we consider the doctrine of God this season? We'll talk about his attributes, his incommunicable attributes and his communicable attributes. What are some of the other things that we'll cover this season, y'all? Well, one of them we talk about, it's again, this kind of, this isn't, this shouldn't be JT's favorite topic to talk about. <laughs> it should be everybody's favorite topic to talk about. We're going to talk about God the Trinity. Oh, the Trinity, right. Well, right. right. Oh, there, we yeah, well, there we go. Well, the Trinity is here. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. We're going to talk about God the Trinity. So, I mean, one of the things that I think we can miss in kind of a contemporary kind of Western monotheistic mindset. I know I know we have kind of this increasing secularism and, and kind of an understanding that we can live in a world where God doesn't exist or we can conceive of a world in which he doesn't exist. But one of the things that we need to know about biblical history, and we'll get into this in, in one of our first episodes, is that the Bible is written in a radically pluralistic polytheistic mm-hmm. society. Mm-hmm. And when you have, the, have uh, Israel coming out of Egypt and Moses yeah. writing down these first books, and they're worshiping God after God after God, just in case we'll worship this one too, and we'll worship this one and this one and this one, and for him, and for Exodus three fourteen to say, "I am the Lord, I am He," right. like that is a radical claim of Christianity of monotheism that there yeah. are not gods, but there is God. So we'll talk about what does it mean for God to be one. But also we'll explore the diversity of Scripture. What, is, what does it mean for not only for there to be one God, but for him to eternally subsist and exist in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we can think those are three different kinds of revelation of God or three different modes of God's existence. We want to explore why that's not true and why the church and why I think the Bible reveals is this being three persons, but yet one God who share perfectly. Like mm-hmm. this is something I think is going to be important for us to discuss, and again, in a later episode, but as we think about attributes, that the Father, Son, and Spirit don't have different attributes. Mm-hmm. Right. They all perfectly share in all of the attributes of God. And then after we get down with Trinitarianism, we'll go into the attributes. Like you said, Kyle, the, the attributes that we do not share with God, uh, the incommunicable ones, and then the ones that we do share with God that we are called to embody as his image bearers, the, the communicable attributes. Yep. I would just say that this is the doctrine that captured my affections, um, not mm-hmm. just my affections for learning doctrine, but my affection for the Lord. I thought doctrinal study was a necessary means to an end, you know, for being able to read the Bible the way that I should. But the doctrine of God in particular has um, revolutionized my relationship with God. It has yeah. completely changed the way that I read the scriptures um, from the way that I grew up reading them, perhaps. Uh, it, is an, it is intensely practical and intensely 
beautiful. Nothing has brought me to deeper worship than this particular idea. And that may be, you know, because of my own story, that may be related to, that may be the thing that I'm drawn to that you may not be as drawn to, but I would argue that anytime you spend time meditating on who God is, you're going to feel your soul begin to open up in a way that you just haven't felt before. And um, because it's just, there's nothing not beautiful. And I think that this is the thing that gives us the reference point to live in fear and fearlessness, right? You, the more you learn about him, mm-hmm. the more you know to revere him rightly. And simultaneously, you know that perfect love, as your love is for him is perfected, as you gaze on his perfections, um, that perfect love casts out fear. You no longer have any fear that he might break his promise to you or that he might um, learn something about you that he didn't know before that's a deal breaker. I mean, the, the list of practical reasons for studying the doctrine of God is probably as endless as the attributes of God. Yep. Yeah, and, and Jen, I, I'd love to hear, maybe you'd push back on this, but I'd love your phrase that the doctrine of God, you kind of originally thought it was a a means for an mm-hmm. end, and then you kind of wondered, well, maybe that's just my experience. I'd actually push and say, I hope it'd be everybody's. The doctrine of God isn't a means to the end. It is mm-hmm. the end. Mm-hmm. Right. Knowing God is is the hope and joy and goal of the Christian yep. life. He is he is the the fuel of how we get there, but he's also where we are going. Well, and this is my yep. this is my hot sports opinion about what we will do for eternity, right? Like the worship leaders all think we're going to just throw our hands in the air and shake it like we just don't care forever. And I actually think <laughs> if because the, the attributes of God are infinite, right? We we will cover some in this in this season, but there is no end to the things that are true about God. And so my theory on eternity is that we will have a limited, a limitless amount of time to plumb the depths of the beauty of who God is. Hmm. That's right. And maybe we'll sing some while we're doing that. I'm not dogging on the worship leaders. Yeah, sing some. I'm hoping to eat some too, just for the record. Um, but that's but what you said also sounds good. Um, well, we hope you will join us. Uh, this this season will not be a limitless season. It will not be season. eternal. Uh, and it will not be eternal, although on some episodes it might feel, it might that, feel way, that, yeah. that way. Uh, but we hope you'll join us. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we'll hope you'll join if us for this season. there was going to be season. an eternal episode, it should be the Trinity one. <laughs> I, I'm trying to vamp out of this episode, guys. Be professional. You're willing to spend eternity in First Samuel over here. And I'm like, good Lord. First Samuel oh, actually ends. Oh, my gosh. God doesn't. It has begun. <laughs> yes, here we go. Well, listen, if you are following along this season and you want to get extra content, you can find Knowing Faith on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We post reels and videos. Engineer Brad does all that. This is a grid reminder to remind our audience. Uh, JT, Jen, and I do not run our social media <laughs> accounts. Uh, so if you tag us and stuff like, ha ha, I guess Kyle's using his burner account. <laughs> we do not run the Knowing Faith social media account. That's Engineer Brad, of whom we are very grateful for. But you can He's find- straight crazy. He is. You can find Knowing Faith Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, Patreon is now training the church. So that's a little bit of a change for us. If you are on Patreon, nothing really changes for you other than there's some additional benefits. And it will now include ad-free episodes of all Training the Church podcasts. So that is Knowing Faith, the Family Discipleship Podcast, and our newly releasing podcast, Confronting Christianity with Rebecca McLaughlin, which launches this week. So check that out as well. You can leave Knowing Faith a review wherever you get your podcast. Podcast. If you leave a review, drop a question in there. We'll look through those reviews when we do our Q&A at the end of every season. And so leave us a review there and leave us a question. Don't miss our sister podcast, the Family Discipleship Podcast with Adam Griffin, Chelsea Griffin, and Cassie Bryant. They have 
had wonderful guests on. They have wonderful guests on this season. It's been a really incredible show. So follow along there. Check out the brand new show with Rebecca McLaughlin and I confronting Christianity. We've got some great guests, great topics. In our next episode, we will begin with the question, who is God? And that'll start a four-episode exploration of the doctrine of the Trinity. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Grace and peace.